15, not all of it, but some of it. And it says the following. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Some translations say a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Thus says the word. Healer being the last word in this translation that we read. I said last week, I think it was last week, let's just say it was, that there are attributes of God that are, well, that wouldn't really be known to us. Or at least, well, they wouldn't be known, they wouldn't be appreciated. I mean, they wouldn't be necessary. If we lived in a completely perfect world, there are some attributes of God we wouldn't need to know. We'd never have occasion to talk about them if the world were absolutely perfect. And we talked about some of those. And here is another one. There really are some things that are totally uh, universal. You wouldn't have to explain them much to people. You'd find immediate solidarity with people because we're all the same in a few regards. These universal things cut across every boundary and their certainties. And everybody just knows about it. And sometimes we talk about some things that are certain, that the only things the old saying says are death and taxes. But that leaves probably a few things out. And one of the things it certainly would leave out is the certainty of sickness. This is universally experienced by all people everywhere, no matter what. We are subject to these things. Of all the kind of uh, things that fictional superheroes can do that you might wish that you could do, I think one underrated feature of a lot of superheroes is their imperviousness to illness. It sort of goes under the radar. But they don't get sick, it seems like. And that's, we kind of sell that short. I mean, it's cool if you can fly and whatever, you know, you have super strength, but man, what I wouldn't give to also have that superhero power. That I don't get sick. And some of them don't age, and some of them, you know, uh, have physical you know, regenerative abilities is sort of property of immediate self-healing, you know? 
Guy gets shot, just whoop, heals right up. Wouldn't that be great? We don't always recognize just how important that kind of thing would be. That would be quite a dream. And what you wouldn't give, right, to be that impervious, as I said, to all the many vulnerabilities that come along with being a mortal, physical being, which is what we are in our physical state, being embodied. We're just reminded of it all the time. Mortality. Subject to everything in the world. We, we can't just absorb all those cuts and bruises. Like in all those fight scenes, you know, movies, you know, people, they fall off something, they hit the ground, they get punched and kicked and beaten with sticks. They just get up and keep going. And then like the next scene, they're just having lunch. Yeah, that's not how life works. I mean, if you bend over too fast, uh, you know, that's a week of recovery. <laughs> right? I mean... That's just not the way it is. Uh, to be able to do that, wouldn't that be great? Just heal right up within seconds. In the real world, of course, we are frail enough. We're subject to just a thousand or more possible ailments. And, I mean, the world's just full of things that can kill us. And a lot of them we can't even see. They're real tiny. And they, they may be tiny, but they can kill you. The whole world's been scared out of their minds of, uh, for the last couple of years of something that no one's actually had to look at unless, unless you looked under a microscope and saw it. And then it didn't look all that monstrous under there. Yeah, a million ways to die, as they say. So that's, that's just a dose of real hard truth. Sometimes you got to just... Preach what's true, and friends, nobody, but nobody in this room escapes sickness. None of us escapes the effects of aging, and ultimately, physical death. Welcome this morning to the Midwest City, Free Methodist Church. If you're a visitor here, we like to keep it positive. Well, look, I mean, I'm just, we're, we're, you know, not dwelling on it here, but do we come across the reality of things? We Just being real here for a minute. Got to be reminded of what's really true. We read here then, because there's some hard kind of reality in this text. We read here about Israel, such as they were at the time. A big, massive group of people who were, essentially, at the time, nomads. They're nomads. You know what that means. They're just out there with no place to be. They're just like a whole big homeless population. They got no city. They got no protection. They got no food stores or places. They got nothing built up where they can live. No infrastructure whatsoever to speak of. They're just out there wandering around an unforgiving desert wilderness and not on a day trip either. It's for years. We forget about it. We read about this period easily forget just how scary it would have been. I mean... All the things out there in that kind of life that they were living at the time that could just be disastrous in that kind of a situation. Have you ever uh, read about refugees, stories of large groups of refugees in the world this happens? We're not familiar with it so much up close, but in a lot of parts of the world, events take place that send large groups of people packing, to send them on the run. 
and they have to move from place to place and they become refugees and they're out sometimes depending on their landscape however far they've got to go and what they bring in with them it can be it usually is actually pretty disastrous when it happens i remember years ago when the sudanese government uh was was uh, putting pressure on natives these tribal people they wanted to they wanted them out of there basically they're just going to burn them out drive them out and a lot of these people said we, we're going to hit the road before they get to us and they just left whatever homes they had. They they just tried to head out for the border of the country of Chad. And I was, remember reading about this and what a nightmare that it became because, I mean, they're out there in the Sahara or wherever in the middle of nowhere, kind of like these people that we read about here. That's not they're not they're not the path to where they're trying to get. It's not a pathway through, you know, garden scapes with plentiful vegetation and fresh springs to the left and to the right and beautiful weather all along they're just going through this uh difficult terrain and it's and the kicker is that it's a bunch of them and you know what usually happens large groups of refugees are on the move like that i mean it ain't pretty what usually happens and and you know they got to find food, and that's a problem. And you got to find water, like the like Israel tried to find water. You're not going to last long without good water to drink. But the real um, enemy, and, and by the way, also of course they can be ambushed because they're not like uh, they're not like an army on the march. I mean they're vulnerable. But the real destroyer of people in these situations, the f- most frightening foe they have over the horizon, is the one they can't see. Because it turns out that disease is usually the, the biggest enemy uh, physically for, uh, for people in these situations. You know that in a lot of history's biggest wars, disease killed as many soldiers as actual battles. In fact, I think in the Civil War, it killed more of them. And a lot of soldiers died in the Civil War. In those massive battles that took place in the places with the place names we all know... But disease, I think, killed more of them. Now, why would that be? Why is disease such a killer? We talk about how sometimes when the Europeans would clash with native people when they first encountered them, and, you know, well, they had the superior weapons and so on, but, but they also brought in an unseen weapon that they didn't even mean to inflict. And they weren't... You know, the Europeans didn't bring engineered viruses from their Wuhan lab. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? They didn't, they just brought, uh, they accidentally just brought things they carried that they had immunity to. They did, And they just looked around and thought, man, these people sure die a lot. They didn't even know at first what's going on. Disease has always been a problem. So this great throng of people that we read about here in Exodus 15... Aside from the possibilities they face, given their numbers and where they are, and what looks like their prospects in the immediate future, for a lot of them, aside from the possible starvation you could face, aside from the thirst that they feel and the need for water that we read about here, and fatigue from just being out on the move, and possible ambush because they're sitting ducks if an army were to roll up on them, Aside from all that, they really had to be concerned about sickness 
Because if it takes hold, you know how these things can go. It could wipe them out. This is a common and tragic kind of sequence that you get with large groups of people. In fact, water, I think it's, it's interesting that water is part of this problem here. That, that we get in, in a passage that's talking about and concerned about water, you get, the, you get the promise that God says, I'll shield you from diseases that could really do you in. Well, what's the relationship? You know that very often the things that really devastate groups in these situations are waterborne. See, people have to drink something. Where are they going to find it? I mean, you know, if there are handy rivers and streams around, well, that's nice. But, but you know, very often that's, those aren't just everywhere you go. And it's not on tap anywhere. And wells require some infrastructure and time to actually dig. If you're just a group of people on the move, you can't go that far down to find Water, what will happen to you? You will end up trying to find what you can, where you can, and often it is polluted. And sometimes the sanitation situation even worsens with large groups of people, and and you are poisoning your own water, and you know how this goes. And, man, I can can think of few things that, that uh, that I would look forward to less than battling it out with a terrible stomach. One of the big boys. You know, now some of you, some of you have ventured overseas and across borders. And you've had a little taste of what it's like. Just, you know, to get the demon right in the gut. And man, it's no fun. It's terrible. Stomach. Ooh. Give me give me almost anything other than that. And especially when it's deadly. And so people get desperate and you can't find water and you're very thirsty. And it's a bad situation, you see. So you get, a, you get a sense of what's happening in Exodus 15. It's great that we were spared from Pharaoh and we were led out to go find our way. We're going to go to the promised land and there's going to be water there. But, man, that's a long ways off in the future. What about today? I'm thirsty now. I need water now. And there's no water. And then when we finally get to some, yay! You see it in the distance, you know it's not a mirage, it's real water. You run up to it, and it's disgusting. Well, here's how Spurgeon, as only Spurgeon could, the great British preacher, describe the situation. He says, quote, Israel was no sooner across the Red Sea than they went three days into the wilderness, And they found no water. And then when they finally arrived at a fountain, they found worse than no water. For it was so brackish, so altogether unfit for drinking, that although they thought they would have drunk anything, they could not possibly drink this. What, in three days must they that sang unto the Lord because he triumphed Gloriously, now nauseate the water for which their thirst makes them pant. In three days shall they be reduced to such straits that they must drink or die, and yet feel that they should die if they were to drink of such nauseous streams. What exactly made this water bitter anyway? Don't know exactly. He says brackish. I like that's an old-fashioned word. We used to call some water stagnant. 
right? You ever come up on stagnant water? Ooh, it's stinky. There's stuff living in it. You don't want to drink that. You have a hard time making yourself drink it. How was it? Somehow polluted. Maybe it was a salt deposit part of a desert and, and the water was super duper salty. You know, if you're dying of thirst and you drink really salty water, you die. People at sea have learned that the hard way sometimes. You know, guys whose ships went down, they're in the water. As, a, as the great Coleridge a poet said, water, water everywhere. And all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And they would tell the sailors, don't do it. Don't do it, man. I know you want to take a big gulp of it. Don't drink it. Don't drink. Don't start chugging that seawater. It'll kill you. I don't know what was wrong with this water exactly, but we get the point, don't we? It was undrinkable. They looked at it and said, we can't drink this. And that's what's part of what's so interesting about this passage is that that in the context, as we said, of a, of a water problem, a hydration issue, in the context of this crisis that we got no water, and the only water we found is terrible water, he doesn't just say, on this occasion I will hereby make you guys a promise, I'll make sure I get you good water. He does make sure they get good water. But it's interesting that, that his promise is really pointed beyond just the water problem and he says to them I will spare you the diseases that would otherwise probably await you in your situation he's promising not just I'll make sure I get you some water to drink but but along with those kind of problems I got to make sure I'm going to also tell you this I'm going to keep your body strong against the unseen threats that would that could easily devastate this whole project. I mean, you guys could all just be wiped out. This is like some kind of divine immunity that they have. All right, we've had a lot of debates in the last year about what immunity is good immunity and who's got the immunity and how long does the immunity last? What about my antibodies? Well, this is good immunity. This, this is a promise from God. I'll spare you the diseases. I'll keep your bodies strong. And that's an important promise for you, especially in your situation, given what you, where you are and all the things that could really, really devastate you. The ones you can't see. You really need God's protection for that. And he could have just told them, I have distributed masks to everyone. I will resist. I'll, I'll I'll resist the urge. There's so many. This is this is a target-rich environment, COVID-rich environment for, for uh, parallels and yes, jokes too. But here we got another name, don't we? A name given in the context of the promise that he gives. While he tells them, I'm going to promise you, so long as you trust me, and you follow me, and you're faithful to what I've said, I'll keep you disease-free. As you're on this journey. And he says he gives himself a name. In the context of it. For I am. He says. The Lord who heals. And literally there it says. And I am Yahweh Rapheka. Because it's, it's literally saying Yahweh who heals you. But the general name for it is Yerapha. Yahweh the Lord the healer. You know this word Rapha. 
when you get it in other places. And yes, I do have to show you. Let's have a look at it. I know that means the world to you to see those Hebrew letters that by now you're so semi-fluent in, having seen it so often, that's a slightly different font. And in the tiny letters you see it written out as it would look in English. Rafa. R-A-P-H-A is how it usually comes onto the print. Rafa. Do you know that that word in other places in the Bible is used to describe physicians? And that's also true in other languages, several other languages. The word for like a doctor, medical person, physician, is the same word for healer. And there's not so much a distinction. In fact, I looked into it further, and did you know that in modern Hebrew today, which is spoken on the streets of uh, Tel Aviv and so on, if you were just cruising down Ben Yehuda Street, you'd hear, if they talked about going to the doctor, see, Hebrew letter, Hebrew words are built from three-letter roots, like almost all the vocabulary, there's you know, words are built from a three-letter root. And so this root, Rafa, these three letters, from that root come all these other words, including in modern Hebrew the following. The word for clinic has this root in it. The word for treatment or therapy. The word for recovery, cure, recuperate, medicine or medical or remedy. All these, this whole related vocabulary, medical vocabulary coming from this root word, ancient word that has to do with healer and which, incidentally, is a name for God. Ain't that something? This is a reminder to us, really, in some ways, that it's kind of our own modern cultural thing that, that, we, that we separate completely these things. You know, like, well, you've got, you've got healing and healers in, in over here, that's sort of the religious sphere. And over here in the scientific sphere, you've got medicine, doctors, and so on. And that's why we have different vocab for them. We don't, we don't call our doctors healers so much. We don't talk about someone being healed. We talk about being cured if we're in the medical sphere. Oh, if we're in the religious sphere, then, oh, they're healed. We, we, we've got a separation because that's how we've done in the modern world. But that's, that's really our own making. That's really something that we've done to separate that language. And by the way, some, uh, some people who are quite religious buy into that so much that they don't trust the other sphere. So they won't even take cures unless they look a certain way. In other words, if God doesn't do it in the way that it seems like he would do it, like in the Bible way, in the old world way, in the pre-modern, pre-medicine way, I won't even take cures. I don't do any cures except the, the ones that are overtly miraculous that fit my pattern of what I think miraculous looks like. Meanwhile, in the medical sphere, they have all sorts of things they don't understand. Sometimes people just get over things and they can't explain why. But in the medical sphere, they don't dare say, well, there's something else going on here. Well, it's an unknown variant. There's some kind of something we don't know. It's just classified under, you know, the ambiguous category. We're not sure why. Hey, what do you know? We think that way. But all, everyone who ever does anything to bring about wellness for people is, is, is in the healing game, in the healing enterprise. 
And of all the healers and all the physicians who ever were, the, of course, the all-time greatest healer, the goat of healers, was Jesus himself. Right? No healer ever better than this one, the one that we now often will call the great physician. Don't we often refer to him as the great physician? That's an interesting even way to put that, isn't it? That tells you that I like that term because that breaks down the hard wall of separation to say that Jesus was the ultimate medical expert of them all. He had the knowledge and the power to fix anything at any time. The public ministry of Jesus was accompanied by more healings and really a more concentrated display of miraculous power overall than at any time ever in history. There was never a period where such, where with such frequency, so many healings took place. Well, weren't there healings throughout Israel? Probably, yeah. Well, yeah, there were miracles, but you know they weren't they weren't just happening left and right, day after day after day. But Jesus' ministry was concentrated, squeezed into the three years of public life, going place to place to place, and that was where lots of the healing. Power was such that we even read that a woman just reached out and just touched the edge of his garment for a second and was healed. And because Jesus walked through these villages, and uh, here's a verse on the next slide that's like a lot of verses. Lots, you know, we read through the Gospels, and sometimes they're not even very specific. It just, you know. It just, oh, he went, there were lots and lots of people, all these different things they had, all these problems. And look, I love the simplicity of that, that last verse. And he healed them. <laughs> just a nice general thing. Yeah, and he healed them. Because he could, just like that. See, the people he met as he went from place to place, they're just like people at any time, in any place. They got all kinds of problems. So one of the things he did as he intermixed with all these people who came to him. Lord, help us, help us, help us. And what's one of the number one ways people need help in life? Physically. And so he just healed all kinds of people. He even told the skeptics in his own hometown that they would quote him. You will, you will say to me, he said, Physician, heal thyself. There, you're, you, you will mock me, like my reputation as a healer, you're going to mock me for it. You're going to say, yeah, heal yourself. And interestingly, by the way, only, only Luke of the Gospel writers, only Luke records that bit right there, that verse of him saying, you will say to me, heal yourself. And I find that particularly interesting given Luke's profession. Luke himself was a doctor by trade. Surely, I mean, of all the people who witnessed this and or who knew about this and talk about this, maybe, maybe the healings are most profound for him as a man trained to try to heal people to see that happen, to see those things happen. And of course, those words, heal thyself, you know, may have also been a little bit prophetic even beyond the immediate sense of their mockery. Prophetic because Jesus would himself, his public ministry would culminate in his own physical suffering. Jesus would suffer immense physical trauma and damage 
inflicted upon him, and he did not heal himself of it. He did not he did not just wave the healing hand over himself and do the immediate you know the the, uh, the Wolverine style super quick self heal. He could have. He didn't do that, did he? And scoffers in his crowd, scoffers even sort of echoed that same thing that he said people would say. They said, oh, he saved, he saved so many others. Well, let him save himself. Come on, healer. Why don't you self-heal? You're in bad shape. You're dying. Where is your healing power now? And this really leads us to a major question that vexes Christians always, of all times and places. And you've asked it and you've struggled with it. We all have. And that is that question of why doesn't God, the healer, always heal? Why didn't he heal this or this or my problem or so-and-so's problem? Why does he only do it sometimes and when does he? When will he or won't he? And why and how does that work? Anybody in the house struggled with those theological questions. The whole idea of God as a healer and healing powers, let's just face it, it's been dragged through a lot of bad teaching and what you might call bad PR by the charlatans of the ages over the years. In our own lifetimes, here's what a lot of people have most likely heard from preachers that once upon a time they saw on TV. I'm sort of thankful there's not quite as much of this in the internet age, I don't think. But once upon a time when people were more captive to a limited numbers of channels, uh, they'd come across their dial TV preachers. And here's what a lot of people gleaned about God the healer and how healing works from some of those preachers they saw on TV. They got the idea, and here's sort of the, the summary of that doctrine, that there's supernatural power Miracle power for those who know how to tap into it. Like me. Like this guy right here. And you got to just have that faith, friend. You got to believe real hard and have that kind of faith is a special mojo. You got to get it. I've got it. I have it. That's why I can wield it around, make stuff happen, dish out the healings, dole out the miracle uh, healing power on people. And I know how to do it. It's In a way, it's almost like you're... You're able to get a hold of the Holy Ghost and manipulate him, make him do what you want by saying the right things you say and having this certain magical kind of thing that I call faith so that, frankly, brothers and sisters, nobody should even ever be sick. Nobody should ever be sick. You shouldn't even use those words, brother. You should never even say, I am sick and tired. Don't let that. Oh, the devil comes in three words and makes you sick if you say that stuff. I never say that stuff. And brother, take it from me. I haven't even had so much as a cold in 28 years since I claimed that healing power. I claim those Bible promises. It says by his stripes you are healed. And I claim that promise. And that's why I never have been sick since that time. And I never do get sick. And I never will get sick. And brother, if you are ill, and if you do have disease, and it won't go away, well then you just must lack faith. Or your faith is too weak. Or you got sin in your life. Or you just haven't, you haven't put your, you haven't frankly put your money literally where your mouth is. And so if you just send me 
Send me that seed of faith and sow it into my healing ministry. I might even mail you my special healing oil. It ain't just like any oil. I prayed over this oil. It's got my magic touch on it. And uh, just like the Bible teaches about, it'll heal you. Any of that sound familiar? That message, or something like it, went out for so many years on using the power of television. Across millions of people heard that. And hours of ridiculous spectacles of people throwing away their crutches on a stage, dancing around. The old Benny Hinn circus act. You guys remember that? Remember Benny with his white suit on? <laughs> Noah just threw his hands in the air. How do you know about that? And he would, and you know, Benny would blow on him or whatever. He'd throw, he'd throw the Holy Spirit around him. He, I just blew your cancer right out of your body. It's blew right out. Blow on him. They faint and fall over. All that stuff. People saw that for years and years and years. And that did not help the basic uh, mindset, the grasp we have, our basic understanding. In fact, for a lot of us, you know, it left such a bad taste to see all to see that play out. That we started to think, I think many of us started to think, this whole healing thing, just stay away from it. Just avoid it. It's just, it's just a it's snake oil salesman. So I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to step up in church and talk about God heals people. They're going to think I'm one of those guys. And so it poisoned the well, as we say, which is a, a timely metaphor given our passage today. It poisoned the well. You know what we mean by that, right? It made the subject uh, toxic to deal with and talk about in church by Christians. And if you talked about it to the outside world, you're really worried. Because if the non-believer heard you saying, well, brother, the Lord heals, you thought, oh, the non-believer is going to immediately associate me with the charlatans. And then they'll think I'm kooky. There's a few things I want us to make sure we don't forget here. Just a little practical stuff to, to tag on here to make sure we understand. The Lord, our healer. Don't forget this. Jesus and the other apostles later, they used a lot of these miraculous healing signs as just that. In fact, the Gospel of John calls them a million times over, repeatedly, signs. They're signs. That means they signal something. And what were they signs of? They were signs of authority. In other words... There was a purpose to all that healing and the other miracles that took place in that short amount of time. To verify the in the in the in the day where the church this is the foundation of the church. And built into the foundation was the verification of the authority of Jesus over everything, including that. Some things you can't see the authority. Remember when Jesus told the guy who was lame to get up and walk? But remember, there's a bigger context to that. He wasn't just showing them, I have that authority over the physical world to heal this man. It really started with his authority to do what? To forgive sins. But I can't see that physically. So Jesus said, I tell you what, to sh in order to show you that I do have the authority to forgive sins, watch this. So he wasn't just showing off there was a purpose behind that. It was a sign. Now the people know not just, wow, this guy can heal a guy. They also know this man can forgive all sins. 
So the apostles also needed to show that authority. So there was a purpose to that to vindicate their message. Remember this also, that no healing that ever took place, nobody that ever was healed by Jesus in any of these towns, or later some people healed through the apostles' ministry, those healings were never final. The people that were healed were not made perfect and immortal in their bodies from that moment on. They weren't given new glorified bodies. Those people, all of them that were healed in those times of whatever ailed them at the time, they remained mortal. They all got sick later of stuff. They dealt with illnesses later in life. They remained mortal and ultimately they all died of their last sickness or medical issue. Like everybody else in history. You know, we all die of our last medical problem. (laughs) Well, what if I'm hit by a bus? Well, brother, if you're hit by a bus at a high rate of speed, the impact of the bus will initiate physically for you several immediate, acute, serious medical conditions. And probably prove fatal, fatal conditions. But that we could count that too as, uh, you know, a medical condition. It just, it just uh, one that kind of comes on real fast and is real serious in a millisecond. We all die of it. Even you know, Lazarus. Talk about your ultimate healing is your ultimate healing in a sense is you recover from being dead. Lazarus was good and dead, and he was brought forth. But Lazarus. At some point in the future later, I don't know how long he lived, but he went off and got old. Maybe if, if, if he was blessed enough to go on and live a lot of years, he got old and he died. So even healings are temporary in this world and in this life. And one more thing just to mention, good old Apostle Paul. Do not forget, Paul prayed for and wanted a certain unspecified condition to be healed and taken away from him. And God said, no, no, you need this in your life. <laughs> that's, a, that's an answer you don't really want, is it? No, I know you need this. Tell you what, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. There's a, there's a real point to that. Spurgeon said that this is testing of Israel. Testing. He said it was Israel's education. Quote, The Lord was not going to lead a mob of slaves into Canaan to go and behave like slaves there. They had to be tutored. The wilderness was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There they went to university. And there he taught and trained them. And they took their degree before they entered ultimately into the promised land. What, what were they learning in these moments where they had to deal with all of this stuff They were learning they had to trust God. If you never got sick, if you were in tip-top perfect health and felt as good as possible every day of your life and then just one day, boop, you just died. I wonder, I wonder if at the end of it all, what kind of trust level you would have, you and God, what, what would it be like? Theologian J.I. Packer said, When we walk along a clear road feeling fine and someone takes our arm to help us, likely we would impatiently shake him off. But when we are caught in a rough country in the dark with a storm brewing and our strength spent and someone takes our arm to help us, 
we would thankfully lean on Him. God tests us. Anybody ever felt so sick, so bad? I bet your prayers were good. I bet you prayed real good. You know, because, you know, that's when it happens. William Trapp, the writer, said, He who cannot pray, let him go to sea. There he will learn. Because when you're scared, and when you're sick, and when you're weary, and when you don't know, will I make it? Well, you, brother, you'll pray. And you will be a prayer warrior. And so the, the lesson of God the healer, I mean, there's more than one lesson to it, but it, as much as anything, trust God. Trust God. There is an ultimate final healing that will come. There is a final ultimate healing that will come someday. You know, in heaven, we don't need doctors. There's no medical profession in heaven. You will not pray, you will not anoint with oil, call the elders in and pray for the sick in glory. You don't need to. But until then, we want to trust the Lord, our healer.